some of the topics discussed on Blackbird and Advocacy Podcast are difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and so our mini-sodes this month are going to revolve around that. In today's mini-sode, we will be discussing trauma and how it affects a person. I am, of course, Sarah, your host, and alongside me is my lovely co-host, Dan. Hello there. Okay, so last episode you were Japanese, and now you're British? Something like that, yeah. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Are you ever going to be Irish? Maybe. We'll ah. see what I've had to drink that day. Yes, exactly. Dan has an Irish aunt, and she actually says his Irish accent is very good, so. Uh. <laughs> Trauma is something that I think every single person goes through. The loss of a pet, the loss of a loved one, a car accident, parents divorcing, etc. These are all considered traumatic events. But trauma affects everyone differently and to different extents. Some people may not be affected at all by the trauma that they've been through, while others are affected for the rest of their lives. Everything a person goes through in their life will have some sort of effect on them as they get older, whether that be good or bad. And this all starts in childhood. So some of you may or may not have heard of the ACE study, and I don't know if I've mentioned the ACE study to you before. No. Okay. So it stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, and it's a study that was created by Kaiser Permanente in California uh, from 1995 to 1997 regarding the relationship of health risk behavior and disease in adulthood based on trauma in childhood. So basically they looked at what a child had gone through in childhood and then correlated that to health and behavior of the adult. So basically they are saying that if you went through traumatic events in childhood, you'll probably have some adverse effects later on in life. Makes sense. Yeah. So there are seven categories of adverse childhood experiences that were studied, uh, and that includes psychological, physical, or sexual abuse, uh, violence against mother or living with household members who were substance users, mentally ill or suicidal or uh, ever imprisoned. So there's um, some questionnaires for both males and females regarding family health history and health appraisal. So it actually, there are different questionnaires based on your sex. Um, and those questionnaires will ask about current demographics such as marital status, sex, employment status, level of education, etc as well as health, so shortness of breath, allergies to medications, smoking frequency, and others. So it basically um, wants to see what your health is like as an adult currently, um, and then they're going to look back on what traumatic experiences you had as a child. There are uh, specific questions uh, regarding abuse, neglect, and other traumatic experiences in childhood and each answer is scored. So the, tr the more traumatic the childhood, the higher the score, and that correlates to the possibility of having higher risk for health problems later in life. Like you said, makes, makes sense. sense. 
Exactly. So um, I did the ACE quiz, and my ACE score is four, and I think the highest you can go to is nine or ten. Okay. So I'm like well, it's kind of a lot, then. middle. Yeah, I mean, you know, my childhood wasn't the best, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know, we're we're all gonna have something in there. Right. Um, you know, some people are gonna be a one. Some right. people are gonna be the highest number you can be, and then there's the in between. Mm-hmm. You know, it's rare that you're gonna find somebody who was who's a zero. Who has nothing in their in their background you know we've right. all been through some sort of trauma right. not only does this mean that you have a higher risk for possible health problems but it also can correlate to risky behaviors such as drinking partaking in drug use or addiction and promiscuity so again basically they're saying that if you're traumatized enough as a child your your brain is going to be affected by that and your behaviors are then going to manifest into um, unsavory, for lack of a better word, behavior. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, if you're if you're being taught that these things are normal, we talk about that all the time. If you're being raised uh, thinking that certain things are normal, then you're that's going to be normal for you for the rest of your life, and you're not going to be able to understand. Even if somebody comes up straight to you and says, "Hey, that's not right." You're going to be like, what are you talking about? Yes, it is. Because when you're a child, that's when your brain is the most malleable. Yes. That's when your psyche is the most malleable. So you're going to form these impressions just like we've, most people form the impression that like killing is wrong and stealing is wrong. But if we didn't have people telling us that when we were five years old and four years old and seven years old, uh, we wouldn't know that. Right. Right. You know, we would only know that through negative reinforcement, where if we stole something and got hit for it. Yeah. But, like, I never got hit for stealing, yet I know stealing is wrong. Right. Because I was taught that. I was programmed with that. Exactly. So if you're programmed to think something else, then you're going to spend the rest of your life thinking that. Yeah. And even even if you're, um, you know, you you have a sister, I have a sister, even though we grew up in the same household as our siblings we might have very different um, behaviors later in life. We may have gone through the same traumas, but might have different behaviors as we grow up. So um, this always makes me think of, um, during my trainings, we listened to a 911 call um, that I'm not going to play because it, it literally like makes me cry. Uh, so I don't even like listening to it, but I've heard it multiple times because I have to listen to it when I'm in these trainings. And it's a child calling the police because his fa- her father is beating her mother. Ugh. And this child knows to call 911 because this is a repeated thing. Right, right. And this, this is child normal. is constantly calling 911. Jeez. And you hear her saying, like, you know, don't hit mommy. He's hitting mommy again. I need you. You know, we need you here. Like, and it's a child. Right. It's a young, you can hear how young they are in, in the voice. Like, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And it's heartbreaking to know that they have to do this constantly. Right. That this is an everyday is thing life. for, for this is normal. Yeah. Now that child had two siblings. Um, I believe a sister and a brother. The sister went on to go into abusive relationships. Mm-hmm. The brother went on to abuse right. in relationships 
and the child that made that 911 call grew up to be a victim advocate. Wow. Jeez. So three children who grew up in the same household, right. who watched the same trauma happen, right. had completely different, different psychological outcomes yeah. Yeah. from this traumatic experience. Right. So it, it's amazing what the brain can do and what you can do when you just I, I don't even know how to put it. it it's not even just having the will to get through it because even if you want to sometimes you can't you can't will will that yeah, away I mean sometimes it's just about luck yeah that little girl happened to be lucky enough that her brain chemistry yep, yep caused her to take that action now, to I, try to stop this. I also don't know if maybe she went through therapy and right. the therapy helped her, but you know, But either just... way, when she was the little girl picking up the phone, yes. something in her brain mm-hmm. connected what was happening to the idea of reaching out for help. Yeah. Whereas in the case of her siblings, that connection did not take place. Right, right. So and even it... though they're siblings and they're, and they're very, very similar biologically, right. There was just something in their brains that wasn't making that connection. And so unfortunately for her sister, that means that she ended up becoming Mm -hmm. abused. Mm -hmm. And it is really interesting to think that she was the one who was advocating for her mother since childhood and grew up to become the advocate as an adult. Yeah. So it's just, it's really interesting to see just, you know, how we're going to act in a particular situation Mm -hmm. and it's just like the other trauma episode that we did that you know you don't know how you're going to be in in the situation until it happens and yeah she probably at some point in her life realized like hey i've done this like i'm good at this i know what to do in these situations i know i I can act under pressure yeah and you know so it it, uh, thankfully worked out for her but yeah you know unfortunately but it's it's just interesting that again three siblings right. in the same household grew up to have three completely different paths. Yeah. As we know, trauma can happen at any age. Someone can be sexually assaulted at the age of eight or at the age of seventy-eight. Someone can be exposed to family or domestic violence in childhood and also in adulthood. What we want to know is how does this truly affect the brain of the trauma survivor after the event? As discussed in episode six, sometimes during a traumatic event, the brain will shut out some things that are happening in hopes of protecting the survivor. This can go through the rest of the life with that person as if parts of their memory are just gone. They may remember pieces of the event, but not the entirety of the event. They may remember a particular smell or possibly even when they smell something that they smelled that day without even realizing it, their subconscious will bring up parts of the memory they thought were blocked out. This can all be part of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. PTSD is a diagnosable mental health condition that can develop in response to a traumatic event having had occurred. And this event could be of recent or distant past. Symptoms of PTSD can include re-experiencing nightmares or flashbacks, um, attempts to avoid reminders of the event or associated emotions, hyperarousal, feeling constantly on edge, 
and distressing thoughts or emotional reactions. And the two areas of the brain that are affected are the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, which we also mentioned in episode six. So, you know, that's basically like the trauma center in, in right. the central nervous system. Yep. The amygdala is what detects threats and activates that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. And it also activates the sympathetic nervous system to help deal with the threat, and it helps store new emotional or threat-related memories. The prefrontal cortex regulates attention, initiates conscious behavior, makes decisions about what is best to do in a particular situation, regulates emotions, and inhibits or corrects dysfunctional reactions. So when the brain detects a threat, the amygdala initiates one or more of the four Fs. Adrenaline, norepinephrine, and glucose are released. So sometimes in trauma and what is seen in studies of threat response in people with PTSD, the amygdala is hyperreactive and the prefrontal cortex is less reactive. And that's exactly what we discussed in our earlier episode about trauma. Right. One is taking over and the other one is being suppressed and your rational thought goes out the window. Yeah, you know, because like we said, that's that's not really important if uh, a saber-toothed tiger is chasing you. Right. All that matters is getting blood to the legs, blood and sugar to the legs, and, and running. Yeah, yeah, uh. exactly. And uh, not only is rational and logical thought out the window, but, you know, your your brain isn't necessarily forming new memories at that moment either because it's just trying to leave the situation. right. right. So that's why a lot of um, these survivors don't remember some of the things that happened during an attack. They might remember parts of it, and they might have thought that they even blacked out at some points because they just their memories can't be formed. Right, and that's why any anytime you're in some any kind of super stressful situation, like a car accident, or you 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 get mugged or something like that. And you say oh, it all happened so quickly. Well, it happened exactly as quickly as anything else in your life in your life happens. But it feels like it happened so quickly because your brain isn't forming those new memories. Exactly. So when you go back to think about how long an event took, it seems like it only took a few minutes. Um, but then also there are things that are so there are certain memories that are so burned into your brain that when you do think about them, they'll stand out. And your brain will linger, your mind will linger on those memories for so yes. long. And that's why sometimes it can seem like things took forever, yes. even though they were only a few seconds. So right. during any kind of hyper-stressful situation, you can't really trust your cognition, especially no. in hindsight. <laughs> no. And that's kind of also why eyewitness testimony when it comes to um, investigations and and court testimony uh isn't really that reliable right because when we are in stressful situations we're not remembering things as they actually were not at all so for those who have developed ptsd it is seen that an excess of norepinephrine is produced and that can initiate hyperarousal hypervigilance and sleep disruption people with ptsd can get emotionally triggered by anything that resembles the original trauma this can also result in the hypervigilance aspect, which means the person suffering from PTSD is constantly on edge, and this could also have significant effects on the sleep-wake cycle. So this is like um, when somebody's setting off fireworks and it triggers a war vet right. to think that they're back in war. Right. 
um, or watching a TV show about sexual assault and going back to that day that the person watching that was sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is why trigger warnings are especially important. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when the when the traumatic event took place, there were things that were had, there were sensory inputs to the brain, which were not usual. Um, and so now, forever from that point forward, if the trauma was significant enough, though that set of sensory inputs now automatically associates with all of the negative feelings that came from whatever the traumatic event was. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, if you if you were in war... Even if you're a soldier and you might say, well, theoretically, those are normal things for that person. There's still not normal things for that person. That person didn't enlist in the military at age three. Right. And, and develop their their psyche hearing explosions and gunfire. Right. So for even, even for someone who has served regularly, uh, it's still an alien set of sensory inputs to them. And yes, eventually you will adapt to it, but... You know, especially if you do, like, one tour. If you only do a couple years or a few years or whatever, maybe. You may serve, especially if you're, you know, in the Navy or in the Air Force or something like that, where you're doing mostly support kind of stuff as opposed to being a frontline combatant. I mean, you could go your entire tour without really hearing gunshots in anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, and it's a totally different thing. You know, being on the range, you can go to the range every day mm-hmm. and practice. Mm-hmm. And it's a totally different thing than being in the jungle. Right. You know, and something goes off. And there's a so, full, there's a real threat. There. Right. So even though the sound is the same, you know, an M16 is an M16, an AK is an AK. It there's it's a totally different set of sensory inputs for when the person was in combat or when someone did undergo some kind of sexual assault or something yes. like that. You know, a lot of the things that are happening physically are the same things that are happening physically during consensual relationship, but it's. There's a whole bunch of other stuff there that's not normally happening, mm-hmm. that's alien to this person. So these are unique sensory inputs, and when you put when you tie that in with a traumatic event, now automatically that set of sensory inputs points to trauma and points to these negative right. feelings. Yeah. And unfortunately for these people, that means that when they do try to have that normal interaction with another person, that normal consensual experience, it's too late. Now, now that set of sensory inputs is is similar enough. Yeah. to that other one from the traumatic event that even the good event is still going to point to that trauma and those negative experiences. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, going back to the, the whole smell sense, um, a lot of times, especially in a sexual assault, you know, most of the time the, the, the survivor is going to have their eyes closed during the assault. Um, and they're not really seeing what's happening or they might even be blindfolded or they might even be turned around. It depends on the situation, but they probably aren't actually seeing what's going on. They're smelling a lot of what's going on. Mm -hmm. So there are times where, um, you know, they won't know who their perpetrator is, but they can smell a certain cologne on them or a certain body soap on them or a certain cigarette smell on them. And later down the road, you know, they don't even realize that they knew that they smelled this. But then later down the road, when they're trying to identify who this person is and they smell uh, the smell, it triggers and they're like, that's the person or that's the smell that I smelled. So whoever smokes those cigarettes or wears that cologne, 
that's the person. Yeah, well, scent and taste are two of the most primal um, senses because they're based on chemoception. Whereas, like, sight is based on photoreception right. and, you know, hearing is based on uh, uh, reception of vibrations. If you go back evolutionarily, uh, life was chemoreceptive long before there were eyes and ears. Right. There were chemoreceptors just to tell when prey was around or yes. when predators were around. Going all the way back to, you know, uh, prokaryotes. Right. You know, obviously a single cell doesn't have an eye or an ear. Right. But it has little cilia that are designed, it has little receptors that are designed specifically to respond to certain chemicals. Right. And even now, our senses of smell and taste are based on chemo, chemoreception. And so that's why those are two of the strongest senses, especially during a time of trauma. Yes. Yeah. You know, if you're in a traumatic experience, you may not be able to really... You can see, but you may think like, oh, I can't, I can't see. And well, I your, can't hear. your mind might play tricks on you too. Right. You might right. think you're seeing something that you're not, or you right. might be seeing something that you think you're not. Right. So there's right. a lot of because other sight, stuff. Sight is such a complex mm -hmm. process. And even, even hearing is a very complex yeah. process. The, your, your, the inside of your ear, there's a lot of little bones and little fibers mm -hmm. and, and fluids that are precisely balanced that are involved in that. Mm -hmm. But scent and taste are very simple. Right. You just take air in or you take a, a substance, in the case of taste, and there's either a chemical reaction or there is not. Right. Either those molecules bind to the receptors or they do not. Right. And that's it, you know, as opposed to sight and hearing, which are a complex series. So, yeah, your mind can much more easily play tricks on you with yes. sight and hearing than it can with uh, scent or taste. Exactly. The amygdala is also responsible for possible reactive anger and impulsiveness. And those with PTSD are on high alert and ready to jump into action if a perceived threat is near. They are more impulsive and may attack when they believe something is to be feared. And this always makes me think of stories where you hear that, um, you know, it's the middle of the night and a woman hears an intruder and she grabs the gun and she shoots and it was actually her husband mm -hmm. or her child. Right. But that may have been someone who had been attacked in the past. Right. Who is just on such high alert now that any time she hears something that she perceives as a threat, she jumps into action. Right, because she jumps into that sympathetic nervous response where that rational thought comes away. Exactly. And it's just about action. Right. Yeah, it's that fight or flight or yeah. freeze or fawn. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, it's unfortunate because it happens often enough. Mm -hmm. I can't say that it happens a lot, but it happens often enough. And, you know, it really just, it, it speaks to how much treatment these people really need to alter their brain into a better understanding of the situation mm -hmm. at hand. Because if you think about a woman who was attacked back in the day, who's still so scared, who reaches for the gun and then shoots her six-year-old, right? that six-year-old was not actually a threat, but her brain... Right. Was saying Said it was a threat. That's a threat. Yeah, absolutely. Our dog is a punk, by the way. Leave that in. They need to know. <laughs> the world must know Dino's a punk. 
Furthermore, people with PTSD also often report feeling an excess of negative emotions and little positive emotion. They could have difficulty enjoying the tasks and hobbies they used to love. The part of the brain that is responsible for emotional awareness, the insula, right? Insula? Mm-hmm. Insula? Mm-hmm. When, uh, when in communication with the amygdala, um, can suppress the prefrontal cortex and interfere with the ability to regulate emotions and assign proper emotion to particular events. So again, everything is interfering with that rational thought process. Everything is saying, yeah. don't think about what's logical in this moment. Right. Just get the hell out. Right, right, exactly. So treatment options for those who have PTSD are generally exposure therapy. The person is repeatedly exposed to trauma cues in order to enhance the ability of the prefrontal cortex to assign less threatening and more positive meanings to trauma-related events. Also, antidepressants are used to achieve similar results. So, again, it's training the brain to think more rationally in a situation. Yeah, and I mean that's you know I was gonna say when when you have when you have that association from such a from such a strong trauma, you, you know it's really difficult to like overwrite that. You've gotta you've gotta have a, a set of inputs that are just as strong. Mm-hmm. And so I was gonna I was gonna say I don't know if you can do that if there are therapies for that, but I guess what you're saying is there are therapies. There are therapies. Um, you know, it really depends on how deep rooted it is yeah um there are of course people who are not never going to right be no one's going to be cured of their ptsd um you can at least give them some tools for dealing exactly dealing with it coping with it and the way that they do the exposure therapy is you know they start with small little increments and they work up to bigger things to to get everybody emotionally prepared for what they're going to be doing um, you know, your first session, you're not going to be jumping right into right. to something right. like that. It's they, just like walking into the room with the spider. Yeah. Before you pick the spider yeah. up. Yeah, and and they're not going to start doing exposure therapy right away. Period. They're going to find your baseline when you come in for your first session. Right. And you know, just just do like normal therapy with you first, and then work your way into starting to do. Um, these these other sessions because you again you have to be mo- emotionally prepared for these things. Sure. If you are just thrown into the situation, you you'll be re-traumatized. Right. So right. that's that obviously could, the complete opposite of what they want. Yeah, and that could just make it harder for you to get out. Exactly. That could just dig your dig you deeper. Exactly. Into the hole. And you know that's sometimes why people don't continue therapy because they find a therapist who's doing things incorrectly right. or not correctly right. for that patient because right. different patients need different things. Oh, sure. So you have to find the right therapist, too. You can't just automatically go to one and say, I'm going to be cured with this person. You have to have right. a good re- relationship with that therapist as well. Um, and that therapist has to understand your psyche before they can start doing anything further. So if you're not having a good therapeutic relationship with that person, you should seek other help. Absolutely. There are too many people, though, that think that's going to be every therapy session, that's going to be every therapist, so I'm never going back. Therapy doesn't work for me. Yeah, well, it's it's hard for people to accept therapy, too. I mean, not that long ago, therapy was not a thing. Right. (sighs) 
Yeah, yeah. It, it was give me a vial of cocaine and yeah, and some leeches. And unfortunately, <laughs> still for men, it's it there. It's very stigmatized for men yeah, to go men, to yeah. to therapy. And you know, it, it's it's unfortunate because most of the time, you know, war vets are are generally male. You know, there's there's some females, obviously, but you know, the the most that we see who have PTSD from war are males. And, you know, there are a lot of therapies that um, are through the VA um, and things like that. And that this is kind of what they do, actually, with PTSD um, vets, um, this exposure therapy. Um, but a lot of times they're, they're ashamed. You know, I'm a war veteran. I'm a right. war hero. Like, I'm this strong, masculine man. I should not be going to therapy. Right. And... That shouldn't be the thought process. You, I, I tell Dan almost daily that I think every Everybody single person should go to therapy, regardless if you have anxiety, depression, PTSD, anything. Just have someone to talk to yeah. who is an unbiased participant. Yeah, and I, mean, and I mean, 15 years ago, I would have said, no, I don't need therapy. Therapy is for weak people. You know, I'll just tough my way through it. But now I absolutely agree that everyone can use a little therapy. Everyone. Even if it's like you said, it's just someone to talk to. Yeah. And the funny thing is the same guys who, you know, come back from war and they say, oh, you know, I'm too tough. I'll never go to therapy. You know. I, that's not for me. I'll just go with my buddies and we'll have a fire and some beer and talk about stuff. Yes. Well, guess what? That's therapy. Or, or <laughs> I say this a lot too, um, bartenders. Yeah. Bartenders right. are the ultimate yeah. therapists. I'm not going to, the, going to the shrink, but I'll go to the bar and have some drinks and pour my heart out to a stranger. And the bartender <laughs> will stand there and listen to you. Yeah. That, they do that. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been out with friends who have just done that with therap with therapists, with, with uh, bartenders. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've kind of joked with the, some of the bartenders, like, oh, you know, they're they're getting uh, essentially free therapy, but, you know, they're buying the drinks, so right. they're still paying. 12 but, bucks a drink yeah. plus a couple dollars in tips. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they're still, they're, it doesn't matter if you're going to someone who, who, you're paying to listen to your problems in a clinical setting. It's like you're saying exactly the same thing as just sitting around right. drinking with your buddies, talking to them about whatever it was that was going on. Yeah. And, and we keep talking about war vets and everything. Um, well, PTSD was um, actually first a diagnosable um, mental health condition and put in the DSM after the Vietnam War. Yeah, well, because that was the first time that it was bad enough that they really had no choice but to look at it. I mean, these guys were exposed to some things that no one had been exposed to before. Right. So they, they had to do something about it. Exactly. They had to acknowledge it. I mean, yeah, right. PTSD had been around for right. m millennia, But basically. it wasn't taken seriously. But it wasn't taken seriously. Exactly. After, after the vets were coming home... It, it, people started taking notice like they're not they're right. not the same as when they went right we have to we have to do something about this right. and so that's how PTSD um, came to be uh, but one last point of trauma that I want to bring up is something called vicarious trauma have you heard of vicarious trauma no have you heard of compassion fatigue no 
Okay. So vicarious trauma is also sometimes referred to as compassion fatigue, and it is a phenomenon associated with caring for others. So a lot of caregivers and advocates can get compassion fatigue, and it can be extremely detrimental to their own mental health, as well as not allowing them to fully help the person they are trying to help. So a lot of people who are caring for, you know, elderly parents or um, a sick relative or, or advocates like me who have to go see, um, you know, survivors a lot, um, we can get compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma because of what we're experiencing through the person that we're trying to help. Right. So people who have any kind of trauma, whether it be from a past event or vicariously, take time to care for yourself. Self-care is so important to your mental well-being. Find something you enjoy and do that when you need. Whether it be yoga, exercise, painting, playing an instrument, watching a funny movie, calling a friend and just bullshitting for a bit, whatever it is, do it whenever you need. And yeah. maybe see a therapist. Yeah, you got to put your own mask on first before you can put your mask on. Exactly. Your you said that in one of the other episodes, and it's so true. It's so 100% true. You can't help others until you yourself are being helped. Right. You have to care for yourself. And I know that people are going to think, no, but that's selfish. It's not at all it's selfish. Not selfish. <laughs> because if you are not in any place to care for anybody, you are not going to be at your best to give the best care right. to that other person. Right. It's just like right now, if you're a healthcare worker and you suspect that you may be sick, you've got to stay home. Absolutely. Even if you're not helping patients for those two weeks, you've got to go home and get yourself better so that you can come back and give it 100%. Mm -hmm. Because if you insist on going in, you're just going to get a bunch more people sick. Right. And and healthcare workers uh, especially get compassion fatigue. Yeah. Absolutely. So they, it's, it's, it's just... You need to take care of yourself. You need to take care of your, your, your mental health, first and foremost. If you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love anybody else? Exactly. Can I get an amen? <laughs> <laughs> yes, RuPaul. She speaks the truth. Um, so that concludes Minisode Episode 3. And we hope you enjoyed today's psychology lesson, and we hope you are taking care of yourselves. And uh, if you need someone to talk to, you can text the crisis text line by texting HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741 in the U.S. and Canada. For the U.K., you can text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 85258. And our Irish friends, can text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 086-1800-280. Or you can go to their website at crisistextline.org. And uh, they're a fantastic organization. They are, it's a bunch of volunteers. Um, I actually trained to be one, but I couldn't fit it into my schedule at the time um, because I'm insane and I do like 8,000 different things at once. Um, and it, the volunteers go through um, intense training to know how to compassionately and empathetically speak to um, these people who are texting in. And if uh, anybody is texting with, you know, suicidal ideations or anything, they, they know exactly how to handle that. Um, 
they have their supervisors basically they're with them um via the text chat so they can contact them at any moment if they feel uncomfortable with what's going on in the text and they can um call in their supervisor to to you know um make it a little bit more comfortable for them and uh and and help the uh the texter but it's completely anonymous um and it's just it's an easy way to to get some some talk time and you know especially right now because we can't really like talk to people right a lot you know we do like the zoom conferences and stuff like that but um you know if you just if you just need someone to talk to you can text them. They'll, they'll just be there to talk to you. Yeah, and it's someone new to talk to mm -hmm. as well. You know, as much as it's great to talk to your family and your friends, you know, if you're doing that every day for, like, a couple hours a day, yeah. eventually you're just going to run out of stuff to talk to. You just want to hear a different voice. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, so I'll link that um, in the show notes, but um, if you go to crisistextline.org, the phone numbers are up there also that you can text. So if you or someone you know has a story you would like to share on Blackbird, you can email us at blackbirdadvocacy at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at blackbirdadvocacy. Um, I try to also be available there to talk also um, right now because I'm not working. I'm home a lot. And even though I'm doing schoolwork, I'm, you know, I have my phone with me. So if you want to DM us on uh, on Instagram, that's that's fine. You know, I'm not a therapist. I don't pretend to be one. Um, but you know, I am a trained advocate, so I, I can I can talk to you. And you know, if you feel comfortable doing that, that's totally totally fine. And uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And I think I mentioned in the last episode, but we're finally on Spotify. Woo. And it's free. F-R-E. Yeah. We would also love if you gave us a review and shared us with your friends and family. Maybe. Hopefully. So, as always, be safe. Take care of yourselves. And take just 10 minutes for yourself today. Find something to do for 10 minutes that's just for you. Just breathe. Yes. Deep breaths. Yes. Close your eyes. Concentrate on something nice. Yes. And continue social distancing if you can. Yeah, stay home. Fix that piece of molding that's been sagging for the last six years. We've all got saggy molding. We look at it for six years. Fix it. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>